Greetings, programs, and welcome back to a new episode of the Awesome Friday Podcast. I am your host, and my name is Matthew, and joining me this week uh, is Rachel, because Simon is on holiday. Say hello, Rachel. I'm not going to do the joke again, but hi. (laughs) 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 Sounds lame to do the joke again. I know this is a radio show, but like... I, for anyone listening, uh, just picture my like expectant face waiting for Rachel to say hi, Rachel, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because she made that joke on our Patreon show, which you can get if you subscribe to our Patreon, and that's all I'm going to do for housekeeping this week. Um, but yeah, how are you? It's been a couple of weeks since you were last on the show. Uh, uh, how are how are things? What's going on? What's new? What's happening good. with what, Rachel? What was what was the last time that I was on? That is an excellent question. Uh, it was the the three, and now that you've asked me, I should know this. I'm not as organized as your, your podcast host, (laughs) co-host. Um, so I don't have this information in front of me, uh, because we're a little more loosey-goosey. Um. I'm just trying to think. I can't even remember what we... I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It, Um. so, so in my mind, it was a long time ago. (laughs) <laughs> it uh, oh, it was no, our. It wasn't. It was our. Uh, it was our best. Uh, best movies of the last two years special back in the middle of July. Right. Yes. Okay. It was not that long ago. Yes. Yeah. So it's like a month. A month and change ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where we, where we like chose our favorite film of the last of the previous twenty four months of films to celebrate the show's two year anniversary, um, which I think was a good episode. Uh, and I thought we all had good choices. Do. It was very fun to do. I enjoyed how strict Simon was about it. It was like you had to. It was the uh, the nuclear option type of yeah. format, which I appreciated. Yeah, um, definitely it's been good though. Summer's summer's winding down. Tiff's coming up. I'm looking forward to it. How you been? Good. Uh, summer's winding down, and Viff is coming up. So I'm looking yes. forward to that. Um, Tiff very frustratingly does not <laughs> have a remote option. Yeah. Um, so I didn't. I don't even bother applying to it because they don't. Uh, just too bad. Uh, and I just I mean, and I don't have it for a bit, you know. And it was very handy, especially for Canadian. Um, for I mean, Canadian the one, the one year so. that they had it, the one year I remember them having it, which I think was 20, 2021. 20. Yeah. 2020 or twenty twenty one. I did apply and I got rejected because I guess I wasn't oh. didn't have the reach at the time. Not um, yeah, not cool enough. Um, but the short, the other part is that like I could, I have multiple places I could stay in Toronto. I just don't have the funds to go and do expensive. that at the moment. So I'll tell you, um, it's expensive. Even um, there, I had like this really great idea that oh well, not a lot of actors are going to be coming to TIFF this year, so maybe the hotels are going to be a little bit more hard up for like guests. Because I was like, oh, maybe, so maybe they'll a little cheaper. It's not cheaper. I thought I would check and see. <laughs> I just thought maybe it'd be interesting, like I'll stay downtown for a few days. But no, um, it's very expensive to to one flying within Canada is just insanely expensive, no matter what. And then, um, if you don't have a place, to stay, I mean, you said you did, but like even if you don't have a place to stay in Toronto, um, it can get very, very, very expensive here. Well, and I don't know about you, but I'm very when I'm on holiday, I'm a very impulsy person. So there's always like unanticipated you know expenses. I know, uh, I've started to realize like some people will take a vacation to say a Venice, right? And then they'll just time it with the Venice Film Festival and apply for film for accreditation. So they kind of 
put the two together. And then I've heard some people be like, yeah, but why would you want to do a film festival for your vacation? But I'm like, but that's actually kind of a nice vacation idea, I think. Like you, you kind of go over there and then, um, but you have to have it in mind that you're not going over there to make money necessarily. Like you're going over there to just vacation enjoy a film festival kind of. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a bit of a different mindset that I, I thought about previously of people going to film festivals on their own dime thinking like, are you really gonna, you're not going to make back the money that you spent. But then at the same time, it's like, well, who cares? Like maybe you're just going to Venice because you want to go see Venice and Venice is beautiful. Why wouldn't you want to go see Venice? So. Yeah. I mean, even before I've been able to get accredited for the Vancouver international film festival every year since about 2014, mm-hmm. which means I've been doing it for almost a decade. Um, but even before that, like I went to the film festival. Yeah. Like it's, you know, same with me too. Like before <clears throat> I was ever accredited, like, which is only, I guess, two years ago. Um, I did go like, cause why wouldn't you like, it's a thing in your city and it's, you like movies and they have a good selection there. So why yeah. not go? But it can get expensive. So like, that's the other thing too, is if you can apply for accreditation, at least you, that bit is free for you. Like you can attend a film festival for quote unquote for free. You have to put a little bit of work in afterwards, obviously, but um, yeah, I don't know. I actually, I've come around on, again, coming around on these ideas that this is a nice, like a nice thing to do is just to kind of put your your vacation alongside a film festival if that's in, if that's something you're into yeah i think for me that the, there's a key difference too in that like i think perhaps the level uh, not level but like the type of critic you're referring to is the type of person who maybe like makes a go at doing this for a living and i don't mm. not do that but i also have a job so like being on vacation from film criticism to go to a film festival is like a different vibe than me traveling to a film festival. I guess Absolutely. Is what I'm to say. Um, yeah. And then there's also just the fact that, so there was a couple of years there where I like really went like whole hog, especially at VIF cause it's local. And I would do the thing where you like, you know, and I know that um, our mutual friends from for real did this, I think last year where like, I know Todd watched like five films a day for like the 10 yeah. days they were there or something like that. They were intense. Yeah. And, um, I have done that at VIF before and I will never do it again. <laughs> I, I, said... I, I, I very much, I like, don't get me wrong. I would love to make more of a living doing this mm-hmm. podcast and, and as a film critic. Um, but I refuse at this point in my life to let it be something that's going to burn me out. So. I have found the weird, so the, the strangest apparition that I have discovered during these last couple of years is that when people go to TIFF, it is like a badge of honor that you said you come out the next day, like, man, I only got like two hours of sleep. Or like, I watched X amount of movies and you did that. And I'm like, but that's not enjoyable, is it? Like, it's exhausting doing. Last year was my first TIFF that I did that was completely on, um, sorry, in person. And it was still a bit of a weird TIFF. Like, I don't think it was. No, this year was kind of meant to be the full-on normal normal tiff and then obviously it's it's not going to be but it was like it was my first time actually doing it and like showing up basically every day like more or less every day I, I went down to to go watch something I didn't do five movies but I would go down to watch something or like do interviews and things like that and it's exhausting doing it and I mm-hmm. I wasn't I understood why I a lot of writers decide to take the week after TIFF off, like they just go on vacation somewhere else for a week. Um, 
but I did meet a lot of people too who were where it was like it was this thing you kind of go to TIFF to exhaust yourself. And I'm like, but that's not enjoyable. I don't, yeah, I don't I don't see where people find enjoyment out of it. I can kind of understand for Todd and and Thomas and uh who else was there? I think uh Taylor, Taylor was I think. There. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and and was Marty there? I, no, Marty went to I think Marty went to Sundance with them. I don't think he went to TIFF, I but like I understand for them when you come all the way over here and you are spending money on a flight, you're spending money on a hotel or like finding some sort of accommodation, you wanted to do the full thing and you want to like get as much out of it as you possibly can. So I do understand that side of it as well. But I never understood, yeah, like people just wanting to go to exhaust yourself and be proud that you exhausted yourself. And honestly though it's not even the um it's not even the exhaustion that gets to me. It's that if I watch, because I've done this, so I know this because I've done it before. If I watch four films a day for more than like two days in a row, I don't remember what what the hell. Oh, I've seen. absolutely! There were so many movies I didn't really remember. And then I'll go a step further with that, which is there are some movies you watch, like All Quiet on the Western Front. I watched that at TIFF. I think I had to run to a a screening for like right afterwards, pretty much. So I had to leave straight away. And that is one of those movies that you should just sit there for a second, let the credits roll, head out, and don't talk to anybody. <laughs> like, yeah. just kind of go to bed and just like relax. I like go go get a drink or something like that because, but you don't get that lug. It is a luxury. You don't get that experience when you're doing film festival stuff, if to that extent, because yeah. you're like I I gotta go run to the next thing. So you don't absorb stuff as well. And I I agree, you do not remember things very well. Yeah, and I find that it just makes me <clears throat> like at that point, what's the point, right? Like if yeah, I'm going to watch absolutely. eight films in two days and only remember three of them, then why did I bother? And also, yeah, I feel like it makes me, you know, if if I'm going to label myself as a film critic, it makes me a worse critic if I am and then going to use those films uh, either to review them or if I'm going to use them as like comparison points for other films, but I don't really remember what the hell I watched. Like there's no point in having done it. Yeah. So I feel like it, it diminishes me as a, as an appreciator of the art form. So That's I don't, true. I don't do it anymore. The most I'll watch in a day is like maybe three. Um, but like, that'll be a com like VIF still has a combination online and in person. So I'll watch, oh, really? like, if That's I watch, good. I might watch two at home during the day and then go to one in the evening. That's a pretty common thing for me to do, but that, I get to spread it out for all the day and I get to like have breaks and eat meals and yeah. not just like, you know, hang out in theater eight at international village to watch all the French films in a day. <laughs> it's, it's a yeah. I thing. usually try to go between two and three, but sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, but usually that's how I, I should really get to sit down and build my TIFF schedule. Cause I still haven't done that. And I think we need yeah, to luckily, this week. Yeah. The Vancouver, um, schedule is not out yet so i have time and i don't think they've actually technically i i i have i have two different avenues for accreditation this year so i don't expect to not get it but the the schedule's not out so i don't have to worry about it is the accreditation window not even open yet it just closed actually oh. it literally like today we're recording this on a sunday and it closed on friday so oh. it's it had been open for about a month yeah oh. but the and they've announced the like special seven or eight special presentations but not the main schedule yet Got it. Got it. So it's going to be an interesting year, though. I mean, uh, Vancouver is one thing, but with the ongoing writers and actors strike, I can't imagine that the coverage is going to be the same this year, right? Like, and first of all, uh, just to get this out of the way, 
obviously none of the films we watch would be possible without writers and actors. So WGA strong and SAG after strong. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every, every, and the two movies we're going to talk about in, uh, one of them, I would say in particular is just not, not possible without a very particular level of love and care and attention and real world experience that writers and actors can bring to a story. Um, but just from a practical level, like one of the big, one of the big attractions of going to a film festival as a accredited person is the chance to like interview people. And there's just, you know, two thirds of those people are not going to be there this year. I don't know how that's going to work for many of us. It's going to be a lot of director interviews basically. Right. Yeah. And maybe producer. Oh, actually, no, we're not going to go down that road. Not right now. Now's not a good time for that. I mean, if you're about to ask me who I prefer interviewing, um, I don't have a preference. I like talking to everyone. I just love, I love talking to people who make movies. Uh, Good answer. But uh, I just think it's weird that they're like, it's going to be, a. I think it's going to be difficult for people who are, you know, like the, like our friends at for real, who like a lot of, a lot of the, I'm sure a lot of their traffic comes from, from interviews, yeah. especially on their YouTube channel comes from interviews with actors and writers. And they're just not going to have that opportunity this year. I wonder what that what impact that's going to have on the the landscape, um, which is not a way of me blaming anyone for striking. Uh, it's the studio's fault and always will be. Um, if they would just you know agree to give up, I think it's like 0.8 percent of their annual revenue combined avenue annual revenue they would uh, oh, it's just solve the problem. Peanuts. It's yeah. like David Zaslov's like. It's certainly uh, Reed Hastings, like, couch change. Like, it's not real. It's, it's not an amount of money they need to be arguing over. Except in that they're greedy, greedy billionaires. But that's a whole thing. It thought. is. Labor talks are always really interesting. But, no, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I think right now, so a lot of the movies that came out in theater, a lot of the press got done ahead of time, like, before the strikes happened. So, Oh yeah, like we're even... still seeing. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, like, uh, Letterboxd has a thing they do on social media where they ask famous people their like top yeah. four films, and like every single one of those videos, they're still putting out like one a day, and every yep. single one of them is tagged that like we did this months ago. By the way, yeah. So like Gran Turismo, for example, I think, and actually no, I mean, I don't actually no, I haven't seen Denzel really doing much press for Equalizer either. I know Anton Fuqua's. But it's basically like we're coming up to the point now where the movies coming out did not get that lead time to do the press ahead of time, which is mm-hmm. the, the Barbies, the Oppenheimers, the the bigger films, um, Blue Beetles. Yeah, actually, even Blue Beetle, they didn't really get to do that much. Not the cast anyways. Um, So that'll it'll like it's now kind of all they're going to start feeling it. And I mean, we already saw it. Dune 2 got moved to next year because they do need. Chalamet and Zendaya, they do need those guys out on the uh and Florence Pugh and Austin Butler, they need all those guys um to be doing the press. So now we're actually starting to see a proper impact. Whereas I think at the beginning, as viewers, as consumers of the media, as people who watch those interviews, I don't think that we really saw it yet, but I think we're starting to in the next definitely are, and yeah. especially with Venice, Tiff coming up, um, no, those are like your last kind of big film festivals for the year they're not going to be there so yeah it'll be interesting i mean that makes sense too right like the writers have been on strike since the spring like it's mm-hmm. over 100 and 
certainly over 110 days at this point, but the actors yeah. have only been on strike since the beginning of July. So like famously on Barbenheimer weekend, the entire cast of Oppenheimer was on the red carpet when the strike was strike announcement happened and they just, they had to walk away. Like, the ba- so, yeah, they were, they were on the red carpet, did all the interviews, did took the pictures, all that kind of stuff. Then when they got into the theater in Leicester square in London, um, Chris Nolan was the only one to come out on stage or not the only one. Sorry. I think some of the, the producers were there as well. And some of the other crew members, but Chris Nolan's the only one who spoke and he was like, right. So all the actors have left. Uh, he's like, they, they, they're, uh, they've left in support of this. Cause it, I think it was within hours of it happening. Um, that they well, were even, on strike. They were, as I recall, carpet, so. as I recall, they moved the premiere ahead by like three hours to be able yeah. to have them on the red carpet, which is just, it was I the mean, whole the whole thing is insane to me like a little behind the scenes was like they were they have been for some of these movies they were trying really hard to push things early to like get stuff because they knew that a strike was coming so they were trying to get interest from different outlets of like okay are the do you, can you run this one now which is why you have so much of a backlog because the publicists all knew um the studio i mean even even to an extent the studios knew everyone knew there a strike was going to happen so they mm-hmm. did a lot of stuff um with a long, long lead time, which was very interesting. But hopefully it gets wrapped up soon, but I don't presume that it will. I think we're going to go into 2024 with a strike, so that's my I mean, given... It's interesting having been around long enough to remember the last writer mm-hmm. strike, which was in the late 0s. That was zeros. a big deal. It was a big deal, but... 07, 08, yeah. Yeah, it is super interesting this time in that social media just wasn't a thing in 2007 mm-hmm. the way it is now and so the narrative in the the narrative in the trades today is very much the same as it was in 2008 with them being like this movie pushed back because of the strike whereas yeah. in the real in not the real world but in the social media world everyone's like actually it's because the studios refused to negotiate like yeah. i fixed your headline for you variety you know, like it's. Yeah. I think the the I'm general public is variety and deadline and Hollywood Reporter and that. But I do think it is just clunky to say <laughs> the reason that this movie got um, is delayed is because the studios are refusing to pay their actors and their writers versus just saying because of the strikes that are going on right now. Oh yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. I understand where where people are you're... are getting a and having an issue with it and saying like you're putting. And I'm pretty confident, well, actually, maybe not, because I know Deadline especially has been caught red-handed doing this, but it's like, I don't know if they really have an agenda um, about who they're supporting in this thing. So that that I can, I'm going to go ahead and say out loud that I definitely think they do. (laughs) I know Uh, for, like, I I can understand that the the way that they're doing it, but I, I do genuinely believe that when they're putting a headline out like that, that's just the way the headline's always been written, like you said. But I think it's just it's it is just editorially speaking, it's a much snappier headline and it's a much easier one to fit onto that kind of little I tweet mean, section. Not definitely, def- I, I know I sound like I'm just defending them, but no, I, I mean you're definitely why they've done it. You're definitely not wrong, but it's and it's difficult to sort of uh, to like ex- to like when you talk about it, it sounds silly because like they are on strike. That's a true thing, but like. Mm-hmm there's an inherent bias in our society against the worker. Right. So there is, and, and also but, uh, like when you read a lot of those articles, like there's a, there's a tone, like there is definitely a tone. There's a tone. 
and also, but I also de- think we're deadline just kind of and... living in a time now though where everything is very black and white and people are getting very trigger happy with very tiny little things that are but but like language is important and anybody who writes you know that like you can write a sentence one way and then you change a couple words and it kind of comes from a completely different perspective so i do understand that but um it's just that it's an interesting time for such a huge labor uh labor i mean labor movement generally speaking it's not just to do with the actors and the writers like this has been an ongoing issue for the last how long now this whole this whole year in particular hot labor summer as they're calling it but i mean since covid like we we are literally living in a labor movement right now like we are experiencing it right now in the in the same way that we read about it as kids in history books and textbooks and things like that about when the last labor like we are living in one right now um, mm-hmm. and we're going to see a lot of changes that in 20 some odd years that generation is going to be reading about this time because we are literally living in it which is very fascinating to see kind of where it goes uh i mean you're not wrong I and it's I think for me it's just the fact that like I think what informs the tone of all of that like the trade headlines and articles for me is the fact that I know that they're all one company like they are themselves yeah. a, a small conglomerate like it's it we think of like Variety and Deadline and a lot of Hollywood Reporter as like separate entities but they're actually all the same and they also own Rolling Stone and, and a bunch of other places like it's one big company with an agenda as well. And, and it's uh, good that people are calling them out. So at least even if it was what I was saying, like maybe a little bit more innocent of saying like, look, they're just kind of writing a headline. At least now next time when they go to do it, they will make sure to choose it properly, knowing that like people aren't just going to be sitting abiding by it anymore. And like they need to put a bit more thought into the way that they're portraying their news. Um, yep. Yeah. And also just like not letting them like I think it's like I was saying before, like I think it's important that social media is around to not let that narrative become the narrative necessarily mm-hmm. right for sure so um you know it's sometimes i feel weird that we the show starts with strike talk every week but the strike is ongoing so that's still going to happen everyone to talk about, though. It's, it's an important, it's important topic and yeah. uh just it's just a warning to our listeners that like we're going to be talking about the strike as long as the strike is on so please uh get used to that it's what it is it is indeed what it is. So now, how are you going to segue to the movie? Because I am curious how you're going to do that. Well, now that you've said it out loud, I'm just going to segue <laughs> to the movie. Uh, and we're, again, as per usual, we're going to talk about two movies this week. One of which is newly out. Actually, both of which are newly out on demand. But one of which uh, has enjoyed a uh, theatrical run and many... Uh, very good theatrical run very good theatrical run the adulation of critics and audiences several award wins already as I understand it as well from various critic societies because the major awards have of course all been uh, are, if they haven't been postponed now they will be soon uh, again because the studios aren't paying their performers or writers um, but let's dig into the story of past lives um which is the latest release from uh, A24 in the States and Elevation Pictures here in Canada. Uh, And it concerns uh, a character played by Greta Lee called Nora, who is a young woman who lives in, in the present. She lives in New York. And when she was a child, she immigrated to Toronto from Seoul 
and when she was a child, she had a best friend. Um, so this is 24 years ago. She has a best friend. And then 12 years ago, they reconnect via Skype. And then now she's an author. She's married to another writer. Um, or sorry, she's a playwright. He's an author played by John Magaro. And the childhood best friend and 12 years ago online relationship person comes to visit them in New York. And uh, that's kind of all I want to say about the plot. I don't know. Do you have anything you want to add about the plot? I feel like the colder you go into this, the more effective it might be. I think so. I think it's, I know the trailers and a lot of the marketing that has come out about this movie have really painted it to be this a tragic love story. Um, and I said this to Dakota before he, he was watching. I said, cause he, Dakota said to me, it just looks so sad. And I said, it's not sad. Like I know why it looks sad and why everyone is going into it, expecting this really kind of devastating love story, but it's not that. And that's part of the reason why I love it so much. And I think that's part of the reason why so many people love it. Um, but I'll say, I won't give any more of the plot away, but I will say that if you haven't seen it yet, but you've only seen like a, a YouTube ad for it or something like that, it is not nearly, it is not the way it's not the movie that they're putting it out to be. But it's also, it is the movie that they're putting out to be. I'm not being helpful. But I'm just trying to say, it's not it's not the devastating romance that um, that it's, I think so many people think it is. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I think, I think one thing, we were texting about this the other day, and I think one thing you said is that it's not sad, but it has sad vibes. Yeah, um, sad vibes. Is, uh, and I think I use the word melancholy. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm tempted to use the word somber, but that's a little too dark, I think. I think, melanch- I think melancholy is the right the right vibe. Melancholy, for... I think, is good. Um, and it's very vibey. It's a vibey movie. I'd put this yeah. in the category of vibey movies. Yeah. Because this movie isn't like... It's so difficult to talk about without spoiling the plot more than I want to. But it's not like they're... You know, they were lovers that broke up due to circumstances like they were just childhood friends that if she had stayed might have been more so this movie is very much a limitation of like things that could have been but not that necessarily and then but also in a very real way like also are because they have this 12 years ago relationship where they have a very specific emotional connection but not a physical one via skype and it's very complicated emotionally and it's very sincere and honest and uh i'm trying to think there's another word i'm trying to think of that describes this um but i would say that like devastating is also a good word though because this movie definitely punched me directly there in my is emotions moments, yeah there is moments of very sad thing i think so the entire movie kind of rests on this idea called inyun which is a korean concept of effectively predetermination or like um yeah very very specifically romantic yeah it's a, it's a very yeah and it's it's not even romantic though it's just this idea that there are going to be people in your life who across many many lifetimes you will always come across them um and your connection to that person could be romantic in one lifetime it could be like pure hatred in the next like you could be sworn enemies in one lifetime um, but the point is you will always find each other in a life and you will always have some sort of connection with one another, whether that is good, positive, like, uh, sorry, positive, negative, neutral, 
the, they are going to have an impact on you um, in some way, shape or form. And that's like this, what this movie effectively rests on. And I, I love that idea. Like I'm, I'm always constantly fascinated with, you know, the idea of soulmates and like who you come across the people that you meet in your life. Again, not necessarily in a romantic way, but just good friends that you meet that you just think I've known you for like ever, but you just met maybe 10 minutes ago. And it's mm-hmm. just this weird feeling that you have of some people where the connection is a little bit more heightened, a little bit more elevated than your average connection with another person. Um, and this movie does that. It shows it so beautifully and it shows it in, in a multitude of ways as well of between um, the two characters of uh, no- Nora and uh, Sung and, and then also bringing in Arthur, the John Magaro character who you know he kind of interrupts the inyun but then you have to think well his inyun with nora is is something else as well and then that's something a little bit different um so i i love it i love the way that they play with this concept and show it in a in a variety of ways but also not giving you the kind of fairy tale version of it as well but also kind of giving you a bit of a fairy tale within it yeah i think one of the things i liked there's a moment where when she's explaining when nora is explaining the inyun that like if you meet someone doesn't matter how briefly or in what context but if you meet someone you've met them in every other lifetime so potentially you have eight eight thousand is the number she uses but eight thousand like you know lifetimes of connection and i sort of it doesn't really explicitly say it in the film but i sort of like the idea that perhaps she's on eight thousand with arthur and she's either on like seven nine 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 with heisung or she's on like 8001. You know you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a it's something that like it's either happened before or it's about to happen, but it's not going to happen this time around and I find that so interesting to explore. Um and I don't know cuz I didn't go looking for it, but I don't know what Celine Song's um inspiration for this story was. Um, but it's it's a, just a beautifully rendered love story, semi autobiographical. Like I believe that she did her family did immigrate from Seoul to Toronto, and then she grew up in Toronto, and then uh, eventually moved to New York um, to pursue a film career. Yeah, uh, and I believe actually before I actually say this, but because I do, I did look this up to see if that was a thing. I do think her partner is um, her, her partner is a playwright. <laughs> is white. No, is white is specifically. White. Yeah. Yes, he is. Um, and I actually think the way that they dealt with the idea of, um, like, you kind of, you kind of get like this automatic defensive thing when when the white guy shows up and you're like, oh man, like, come on, dude, like, what are you doing? But then the way that they, she writes him is so delicate and so compassionate very, that very vulnerable as well it is very vulnerable and his honesty of just like there's a line he has in there of just like look there's gonna be something in your life and the connection that you have with this guy i will never be able to get there like that is i for as much as we are in love with each other and as much as we mean a lot to each other i will never understand a part of you the way that he understands that part of you and he goes and i kind of have to accept that and i i thought that that was a really um I thought it was a really beautiful way of looking at uh, um, 
like mixed race relationships because that gets talked about quite a bit especially nowadays in films um and i think that they did it really really poetically in this one of just saying like you kind of got to give up at some point because there's just going to be a a part that there is a gap there's always going to be a gap and you can never fill that gap as much as you try you can try to learn the language you can try to eat the food you can try to learn the culture as best as you can but there is something about it that you just won't get there and that's okay i think that yeah. that's the biggest takeaway from it is that it's that that is perfectly okay if that is the case i think i think giving up is the wrong term i think acceptance is a better one that, like, you just have to yeah. you just have to accept that like you'll never be uh, i don't want to say not the complete puzzle piece but like not the complete puzzle piece right there's a it's just a, a different puzzle piece like it's a different yeah, piece of the puzzle but there will be this little thing that is missing and but that again like the takeaway is that is absolutely fine for that yeah. to be the case because you don't need every single bit of the puzzle to fit in order to have a deep and meaningful romantic relationship yeah for sure and i think the another thing this film does really really well is in this this the present part of the film when Sung comes to visit very specifically comes to visit Nora and then they all go out to dinner together. And um, I don't want to spoil the whole scene because it's, it's incredible. Um, but there's a moment where Haesung and Arthur are left alone together and like their chemistry, like their yeah. Inyan as well is also really super strong and interesting. Like they have this, like they're obviously it would be very easy for this film to play them off as adversarial. Yes. Um, but it does yes. not. It very much, Arthur is very supportive, very understanding of a conflict he maybe doesn't fully understand, like something that she, that Nora is dealing with that he doesn't fully understand. And he's also very compassionate to Sung about the things that he might have lost as well. And I thought it was just mm -hmm. a wonderfully like human reaction um the kind of like human reaction that i sort of wish that we would have more frequently in the world because it's very compassionate very it'd be a much better place if we were more we were more open to that kind of thing and i think it's also a very good indicator of the kind of relationship between arthur and nora um and i would hope between celine song and her spouse in real life in that like it's also one of basically entirely of trust between mm -hmm. him and her mm -hmm. that like you need to deal with this thing. I do trust that you, that you love me. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a beautiful line at one point when they are talking this out and it's like, Arthur's like one moment of hesitation where he's like, look, you just, you make the world so much bigger for me. And I just want to know that I do that for you too. And I thought that was a really great, yeah. encapsulation of that like movie. there's so many great lines in this movie but that yeah. was such a great encapsulation of that like i know you love me i know i love you i just want reassurance that like we're at least close to being on par about this you know like because mm -hmm. relationships are always on a seesaw right like sometimes one person is more and sometimes the other person is more and i feel like that's something we don't really grapple with in media in a meaningful way but this movie really does yeah i love it i love everything about this movie there's um i one thing i always think about uh with a movie like this which 
if you've seen i don't it sounds like i'm picking on like marvel actors but i love these two guys but if you've seen endings and beginnings or maybe it's just called endings comma beginnings which is a sebastian stan jamie dornan shailene woodley movie and then uh chris evans and alice evans no what's her name it is alice evans isn't it uh, the one who is in Star Trek. <laughs> her, The two of them were in a movie called um, Before We Go. Oh, um, Alice Eve. Alice Eve, thank you. Yeah. The way that they, both those movies are shot is in that very, like, I, I think we're going to have a time period where all these, like, indie romance movies were shot in the same way, which was, like, the very blurry black background. They're kind of soft light, but, like, and very warm as well like a lot of orange lights to like lift people and things like that and this movie is shot in a similar way but it's done properly Mm because sometimes when i see it those other times it's become almost like a caricature of itself like it's because this just silly it's like the the rose gold marble marble thing that happened on instagram like everybody was using it and it just started looking kind of cheap and dumb and and obvious Mm -hmm. But the way that in past lives it's shot and the cinematographer, uh, his name is, I have his name up, Shabir uh, Kritchner. Shabir Kritchner, yeah. Kritchner. He's just so, it's so, it's done so, so well. Like every little shot, it's it's blurred where it needs to be blurred. It is just so delicately done. I was saying it is one of the most romantically shot movies that I've ever seen and not necessarily in like, Oh, the gaze that they have with one another or, you know, the way certain like the moonlight. It's not even that. It's just every scene that they shoot. It looks so romantic. And I think that it's absolutely beautiful. It's one of my the one of the reasons I love this movie so much. Yeah, especially either especially or in spite of the there's several scenes when Haisung first comes to New York and he and Nora are wandering around the city. And there's this palpable tension between them yes. that is that it comes it, it comes from two places. It comes from the fact that Greta Lee and and I'm gonna say his name wrong, I'm sorry. It's it Teo or Teo Yu? I believe it's Teo Yu. Teo Yu and Greta Lee are first off, they're both incredible in this film. Yeah. They and are. they do so much, uh, especially in the middle part of the movie, but they both do or sorry, not the middle part, but like a large section of this, the New York section of the movie, <laughs> they do so much with no dialogue. Yeah. That's um, all just like facial expressions and body language um, that really makes you believe this connection that they have. Um, but then also just the way that it's shot, the way the camera, when and where the camera frames them and when and where it lingers on details is never not perfect i don't think there's a if you've seen the poster there's the it's them on the subway holding the subway pole and their hands Mm. are like a centimeter apart um and like that's a good image don't be wrong it's a great still image but i cannot describe to you the like tension tension is not even the right word but like the the searing emotions that are flying back and forth so quietly and so delicately throughout that one shot. Um, It's just a masterwork of cinematography. There's one shot at the very end of the movie where it is like a double door. So you've got um, one entrance and then you come in, there's second door entrance. 
and the first door is like perfectly flush with the frame and it looks beautiful and it's just it's a door like it's a it's a door that fits and it works and it keeps all the cold and the heat out then the second door at the top you can see like a very very slight yeah. slight gap right at the very be- the top and they focused on it and i thought man because it comes right at the end of the movie where you're just like it's like the last that shot of the is movie. the it's... perfect it is just like the perfect embodiment of everything that this character has gone on and just like everything that this movie is trying to tell you in two door frames that come you know one one is on the outside then the other is on the inside and I was like, man, this, this, who's the cinematographer on this? They know what they're doing. I was like, geez, and like, her, and and obviously Celine Song as well. I just thought it's such it's such a well done movie, and I was waiting for it desperately for it to come out on VOD because I was like, I want to watch this again. Um, and it wasn't playing anywhere. Actually, I could have gone to the theater. I, sh- I should say I, sh- I could have gone into the cinema to watch it again. Um, but it wasn't playing like near me, near me. I had to go mm-hmm. a little bit to watch it. Just far enough away to be annoying. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I I still should have gone. I'll be honest. Um, but I was really waiting for it to come in on digital because I just wanted to watch it again and um and watch it again and again and again and again because I I do really. We were talking about physical media not on this one where we was on the not on the bonus one. Yeah, we were talking about it on the bonus round. Yeah, right. Um, I think this is one that I believe will get yeah. into the physical collection for me and the fact that it's a24 hopefully they do a nice hopefully they do a nice little little release for it i think they probably will um it's done really well like let's take a second to talk about the fact that this movie has made i believe about 10 million dollars around the world which i get it like for a summer where we were talking 500 million was a flop apparently 10 million might seem low but like this movie cost what like two million to make probably nothing probably nothing to make yeah yeah i don't i don't know the budget number but yeah definitely not a lot like i so i like i like greta lee and i like john mcgarrow um i actually interestingly i will say just as a quick aside it's a little bit whiplash when the most recent thing i've seen greta lee in is that um uh in polar tina fey movie sisters (laughs) Where oh, she plays yeah. like she plays like the the very stereotypical and also yes. deaf Korean nail technician, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and it's such a it's such a it's it's yeah. watch something else in between is all I'm trying to she say. Can do it all. She can do it all. Um, I forgot about that. <clears throat> but she's great, and John Magaro is like he's like the he's indie darling good. at this point, right? Like he's, he's so good in this though. I was ready is, to hate him in this movie, but. He's he's excellent. I mean, he's I, so good in this movie. Yeah. I almost hate to say that I think he might have been my favorite part of the movie because obviously Greta Lee is the star, but his part is yeah. a very pivotal, and he's an actor who I find very intriguing yeah. because he keeps taking. He's done stuff like The Big Short, and he's a very funny comedic actor, and he's done stuff like The Umbrella Academy where he's a little bit sinister. But he's also done stuff like this and First Cow, which are like mm-hmm. very emotional, very vulnerable, very like not traditionally masculine yeah. type roles, right? And I think he's I think he's underappreciated in his time. I look forward to the time when he does I something. So. I think I look forward to the time when he gets a prestige drama and wins a bunch of awards for it. Because that's gonna happen, right? I'm gonna say um, it's gonna be in in like a cowboy movie. 
I mean, yeah, honestly, get the toss, but they're in a cowboy movie. Honestly, this movie has the buzz. This movie has the buzz that I hope it wins. What's what's the comparison I'm trying to make here? Um, I'm Is thinking about. No, I'm thinking about the farewell, which I'm sure you've seen, oh. which got a ton of buzz and rightly so because it's incredible and Mm -hmm. aquafina who is incredible in it to the point where i almost find that movie annoying because it seems like an anomaly in her performance filmography but then it's a whole other discussion but anyway um and it won a bunch of some indie spirits and it won a couple of golden globes and then nothing at the oscars and i hope that this film just wins everywhere um i have to i i don't think it will if i'm honest with you <laughs> i don't i don't really i mean the bulk of the i mean it's america and the bulk of the film is in korean so yeah, even though I, it's I an american film they wouldn't even put minari into like they put minari into best foreign language film even though it was an american film so i don't get it um no, that but it's like certainly a... certainly one of the best films of the year and i hope that it's recognized as so. such i think critics groups are gonna really hold this one high and um you were talking uh arthur mcgarrow i really love Teo you and this i'd never seen him in anything before but then after this movie i went and looked him up he's also a very impressive human being he speaks like many different languages and i always yeah. find that very impressive in a person um <laughs> but he's got this like he's he's got a very very solid career in korea and, and like and i've been trying to track down some of his other yeah, he was in um, i think he's amazing he was in um decision to leave a very year. small part though very 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 small part but also like i thing. i did like as so i've seen him in two things and they've both been incredible that's what i'm trying to say yeah he's uh, good. i i really enjoy him though and i think he's um he's got like a cool he's got like a cool 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 vibe to him he's like a very like hip dude like i i see him and i go that's a cool person yeah and i feel intimidated because you're so he's cool. also He's also got a really interesting screen presence, you know, oh, all at, yeah. all at once. And I think there's probably some cultural stuff that I'm not qualified to talk about here, but um, the way the way that masculinity is portrayed in Korean cinema versus American, I think there's a lot there's a lot going on there, and I yeah, feel like he yeah. he embodies that really really well in the way that he he exists in the film, especially in the section that takes place in New York. Because he's a cool guy. Because he's a cool guy, yeah. Um, but also, and we haven't really talked about her, but like, yeah, Greta, Greta Lee is so good. She's so good. good. Too, I've yeah. really, nice I've role. really only seen her in comedic stuff, and this is the polar opposite of that. And she is legitimately incredible. Yeah, and they do they do a really nice job too, moving through the different time periods as well. I think like going from, um, we're talking like early two thousands, mid two thousand, then to the present. They do a really nice job of delineating those time periods um and i and i don't just mean celine's song uh and uh you know and and, and in that sense but it's like the actors too like the way that they play the different ages is really great like it's it's such subtle things but they do it really really well and that's not a i don't think that that's an easy thing to do no and even like it's good that the section that takes place so it's now and 12 years ago and 24 years ago which makes it um now and 2011 and 1999 which yeah. makes me feel old um <laughs> but yeah the way they uh even just having like legitimately the 2011 versions of like her macbook air 
yeah. around. Like we're it. also just nice. Like the, the so much of the I detail love... was correct. Is yeah. what I'm trying to say. I, say. I also like to say that like Celine's song, she really made sure that um, Nora had like Canadian T-shirts every now and then, which I thought was very cute. Yeah, I was actually honestly a little disappointed when that section takes place in New York because, like, they very clearly immigrate to Toronto. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, I mean, section. like, I, I it, 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 she, she is literally living the dream of grow up somewhere and be like, I'm gonna go move to New York. We all. Oh yeah, no, walk. don't get me wrong. I get it. I'm just saying that as a Canadian, you wish it kind, was a Toronto thing. <laughs> I kind of wish it was a Toronto movie. That's all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I get I, it's not a knock against the movie at all. It's just me being a pedantic Canadian. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, certainly I have only given to this point, uh, a few five out of fives for the year. And this is now one of them. I don't know how you feel about it, but this is a full, full blown five out of five for me. I believe I gave this an eight out of 10 for when I reviewed this for explain. Um, I think I'll stick with it. I would give it a solid four out of four to five. Interesting. Why only four? I would take what's what's as, keep what's keeping you from a five? I guess is what so I'm saying. So I very rarely do the the five like the perfect score. Like I think last year I only gave one ten out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that's fair. I think that yeah. I I'm trying to like I I don't want to like sit here and like nitpick being like oh this thing was like whatever like this. But for me it just it doesn't it does when I think of like movies that are ten out of ten it's like it has to go beyond my subjective love of a film like i love a lot of movies that i wouldn't say is a 10 out of 10 or a 5 out of 5 mm-hmm. um but if i look at it objectively and i sit there and i go this is something that you know film studies and in decades from now like they're going to study something like this because it is just that great of a film that to me is when you put it up to the 5 out of 5s and the 10 out of 10s and like that so it's it's a very slight thing with me but i'm and i think probably i shouldn't do it so harshly because i think more things that i've um reviewed probably deserve a perfect score than i have given it but i very rarely i even i because you say like what's why only a four for me a four is a very good score well, like most of my I'm stuff not i would say lands at the three so but it's it's just the way to look at it i suppose and i'm honestly just at this point i'm not judging i'm honestly just fascinated by your process uh yes yeah, you know feel like we don't necessarily talk about it as much as we could or should um because yeah my if you look at the like graph of my scores on letterboxd like yeah it's predominantly threes so four is a great score for me as well i think threes um, are typically like where most movies fall there's going to be like a three i know you don't do half parts but it'll be like a three three and a half kind of thing yeah and honestly the, i think the death the, the death knell for a film is actually like is a three because that means it's not like it's average. I'll, I'll take an interestingly bad two over a boring three any day if that makes sense writing reviews that are just like a three like yeah it's the hardest like to review a, they're really difficult because they're just meh yeah just there um i on the other hand so my my process is that i go entirely on my subjective opinion and mm-hmm. my subjective opinion left me weeping at the end of this film so it gets a five <laughs> That's fair. Uh, it, uh, it 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 punched me directly in the emotions in a way that I don't think a film has maybe since Columbus in 2016, oh, 2017. I think it, it captures an emotional vibe 
those two films I think would be an interesting double bill a because I would be emotionally ruined for a week um but b because they they both capture the the vibe of an emotion the the vibe of a it's not a very good way to explain it but they both they both capture an intense feeling in a very specific way that that resonated with me yeah um and you know they're both and they're both about you know, this one's about something that both is may have is but also may have been uh and columbus is about just the it's about waiting uh it's being stuck and waiting and it's it's i feel like more people should watch columbus i feel like it's should be wider seen but anyway that's a whole other podcast too <laughs> anyway five out of five <laughs> um and would you say i i think it's clear like of the i've been given one two three four this is the fifth five out of five I've given this year and technically technically two of them could be considered last year's films although they went wide this year so it might only be three depending how you want to count them um i don't know what for me it would be i don't keep track of these this data I'm sure uh, it's, it's, what, uh, it's what letterboxd is for man yeah. <laughs> so like i gave five out of five to brother and how to blow up a pipeline this year because even oh. though they're technically they came out last year in festivals they went wide this year uh, so they were this year's movies to me because I want them to be because I didn't see them last year <laughs> anyway uh, well that's Past Lives which is uh, a, incredible oh and I just want, ah, sorry I wanted to highlight too that it's I'm, I can just go on about this movie for hours but the direction of this film the direction of editing this film was also incredible and it does a couple of times it does a really good example of that thing where it's kind of kind of tropey if you do it wrong, but like two characters meet who haven't seen each other in a long time, and it does like a cutback to like one moment from their previous interaction, and both of those moments in this film are perfect. So that's... yeah, I I think Celine songs. If I if I ever needed to be convinced that I needed to watch more of Celine songs movies, it's going to be this. Like I'm any the next thing she comes out with, I am. I'm on it. Like, you know what I mean? Like once you see something of, of a, of a director, you're like, that was damn good. So anytime is, that they come out with something else, you want to, you want to see something else from them. This is her only film. Yeah. And, so uh, debut. what a debut. It's her feature film writer debut. And it's her only film as a director as well. She has written other stuff. She was a staff writer on the wheel of time of all things, but her, her background is, um, uh, she staged a couple of theater productions and then worked on Wheel of Time and then made this. And I think that's like a hell of a start. <laughs> For sure. It's, yeah. yeah cool. too good. How is she going to top it? We'll see. Uh, I look forward to finding out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's move on. Um, now that we've talked about one of the best films of the year, let's move on to a film that will appeal to Rachel very specifically and also anyone who loves <laughs> Elvis. But for those of you who don't know, Rachel is our resident um, Presleyan scholar. And uh, on that note, she's giving me a look. It's not a radio show, but she's definitely giving me a look. Um, before we move on to talk about uh, Reinventing Elvis, which is a documentary about the 68 comeback special. Um, uh, Rachel, what is today's Elvis fact of the day? Oh. Let's think of one. 
<laughs> what, would, what, would, what would fact of the day be? Oh, I have a book that is like every. I should have just said what is what was he doing on this day in Elvis mm. history because that does exist to know what he's doing on a very specific day in Elvis history. Um, something with the sixty-eight special is. I think, although I think a lot of people know these. I can tell you can one you thing. Talk that... about what the documentary is about, as I think about a little. Well, I was going to have you do the intro to the documentary, um, but I will say that, like, one thing that I didn't really realize, which makes me feel stupid, because I feel like I should have realized, is that apparently that Elvis um, got around, as it were. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because there's a there's a moment in this documentary which I'm just going to talk about now, I, and I texted you about it where he there's a there's a sequence in the '68 comeback special that was cut from the original broadcast but was restored to later broadcasts and I believe to the DVD, where it's like a musical number and dance number set in a bordello of all places, and the woman he's dancing with, uh, whose name was uh, Susan, Susan Henning. Henning, my God, the like. You could watch those sections without sound, and you would know exactly what is happening. Basically, softcore porn is what like is, what was going on there. Yeah, like very, yeah. very. So this the le- the level of back. intimacy between them is just incredible. They knew each other before this. Um, this one, they did know each other beforehand. Um, they were on a movie together, and I can't remember the name of the movie, but she had like a very kind of small part in it. But even then, they like connected then. So. And they were very flirty with each other then. So then when she came on, he didn't know he, she had been hired to be on the special. But um, yeah, she like surprised him. I think the, I think she says in the documentary, like the way it goes, like she just stuck her leg behind him. She stuck her leg like in between his legs. Uh, and then that was how she greeted him because uh, that's, that's Elvis. I'll say my fun fact is it's not really fun, but it was um, so Priscilla was only there for one day on the entire kind of from rehearsal to taping she was only there for one day despite what baz's movie says she was not there the whole time (laughs) she was there for one day but you can actually see her in um one of the clips i want to say it's for blue suede shoes when he's doing the stand-up section uh and Mm -hmm. you can see her in the background like just kind of standing watching on but i always thought that was funny that like when i figured out she was only there for one day but you do see her on camera very very briefly but baz's movie definitely has her there for a while uh yeah it is what it is i mean it's not a that's a not a great movie with an incredible central performance which i think we've talked about before we have talked about it Uh, but yes um so yeah so reinventing elvis it was a documentary that was um just about the the comeback special and everything that went through it however they really focus on Steve Binder, who is the director of the 68 special, they focus on his antagonistic relationship with um, Tom Parker, who was uh, Elvis's, notoriously Elvis's manager, who was just this, you know. The, the villain in his the, life. Who we'll put say. all the negatives. And like, I mean, they actually do label it as like he is the villain. They actually write that into the, <laughs> into the documentary. And then Steve Binder is the hero and Elvis is the, the superstar. Um, and I have thoughts about the way they do that, but uh, yeah, that's effectively what the the special is. And then they bring out a lot of really cool footage and a lot of photos that have been restored very, very painstakingly um, by, uh, I can't remember his name now, but it's by somebody who is very well known in the kind of the Elvis world of things. His last name is like 
Tunisi or Tunzi, um, but he does a lot of books for Elvis, and he he does a lot of work in terms of restoring a lot of Elvis history, um, <laughs> which is which is very awesome. But it's a it's on Paramount Plus, and I think it's an okay documentary. I don't think for me it didn't give me any new information that I didn't already know. Um, saying that this is probably my favorite thing that Elvis has ever done. So. I have read quite a bit and I've read a lot of stuff that Steve Binder has said about it. So most of the film is his stories, which is understandable because uh, there's not that many people around right now who were a part of it. So they actually got a good amount of people like the backup dancers. That was kind of cool that they got all of them. I wasn't expecting Susan Henning to be in it. Um, but yeah. I think it was amazing that they were all in it. And this was done though, I believe, and I've been trying to get a very succinct answer on this, but I haven't, but I checked the credits. I don't believe Elvis Presley Enterprises, so EPE, they didn't have anything to do with this movie, which is why you don't hear Elvis music apart from anything in the special. Like, you don't actually mm -hmm. hear him singing songs. But they also try to, like, contextualize a lot of what was going on in America at the time and his um, career specifically and why the special was needed and what, what its significance was. Um, and it really was kind of this do-or-die moment in his career, which I found fascinating especially considering he was only 33 when this when that happened um which is remarkably young to say that you already need to come back in your career well i think you know there's a lot of discussion in the film and in the movie elvis about how like i mean that movie portrays colonel tom parker as a villain as well and yeah. about how if maybe if elvis had ever stood up to him he might have had a different life trajectory um because, yeah, he, you know, he was not singing for seven years and mostly doing Hollywood movies, which were mostly bad uh, and not very creatively fulfilling. And this movie talks a lot about this documentary talks a lot about how the 68 comeback special was very like artistically reinvigorating um, for him. I, I found it super interesting. I also wouldn't say that it's like phenomenal, even as like a, a casual, fairly casual Elvis fan. Um, I wouldn't say there was a other than that bit with Henning in it, like, uh, which mostly like, I mean, of course, Elvis got around like he's sixties, <laughs> man, fifties and sixties, but like just the, the, the palpable, the palpable sexual draw between them in this one scene yeah. of them, just like hanging out together was hotter than anything else I've seen this year, hornier than everything <laughs> else I've seen this year. Um, but like it doesn't there's not a lot of new information and it's interesting i didn't realize that elvis presley enterprises wasn't involved but now that you say it like of course they weren't involved like that's why we didn't hear from priscilla you know <laughs> that's yeah. why we didn't hear from uh i guess from riley kyo who i think is currently the head of epe um uh why there's but not to more be fair, music neither of them really have anything to do with it like you wouldn't i wouldn't need why what could priscilla possibly add to this and Riley in particular too, like they they can't really add anything. I think what you want. So I don't. EPE, so I don't. I don't think they have anything to add. But I think if EPE had been involved, we certainly would have heard from one of them. You know, probably but stories like, my grandmother told me type thing. Um, but yeah. I would say the biggest thing of not having EPE sign on is just like he can't use his music, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But and like and they do have this Darius Rucker does a what did he sing Heartbreak Hotel I think um it's yeah. a good version of it it's a good rendition of it but like it is a shame where you don't get 
you don't get some of those clips, like some of the things that we that to help build the story of Elvis. Um, but then again, I, I would also argue you probably wouldn't be watching it if you didn't know a little bit about Elvis. Like you wouldn't just casually put it on. Um, but just to make the documentary better as a whole, as a, just a documentary film, it is a big um, hit when you don't have the license to actually play the music of the artist that you are talking about in there and you need to rely on um yeah, yeah on like other archival footage yeah yeah i mean it does it does kind of it kind of gives this the documentary a focus like it's very hyper focused on this one special but it is like it, it would definitely benefit from having other performances as a at least as a point of comparison like earlier especially if they had a much earlier and then a much later performance it could be like you know this was him at his peak um that was one thing was like that i was a bit disappointed in the film was like they didn't really spend a lot of time talking about what actually happened to him after the special like i don't you don't need to cover the rest of his career from 68 to 77 but it's like 1969 was such a big part of the elvis story like that the the american sound sessions that he did in memphis and the two albums that came out of it like truly reinvigorated his career and like put him back on top as an actual legitimate music artist not just a legacy act not just as you know an old timey oldies but goodies kind of thing like he was putting himself out there as now like i am modern and i am reshaping music again just in the way that he did in the 50s and they talk a little bit about it i think jillian gar who's um uh she's written a few books about elvis um her book called the return of the king which is about the 68 special is very very good i really enjoy it um she talks a little bit about it but i feel like they kind of one of the things i didn't really like is like they were clearly trying to end the documentary on if i can dream which is a, mm-hmm. is a very natural ending point with this with the with a documentary like this but then because they did that they flipped the timeline a little bit like they started talking about the impact and then they jumped back into oh, this is how we got If I Can Dream um, for the end, just so that they could end with it. But I just feel like if you're going to talk about reinventing Elvis, you really to strike home the point of how did you actually, did it work? You do need to talk a little bit more about what happened in 1969 in Elvis's career. Um, and then I don't know how many of his bandmates from that session, I don't think Chip's moment is alive anymore. Um, but it, and, and then that makes it a little bit difficult. But again, without EPE, you don't get those songs. You don't you're you're not able to to play those songs in it as well. So that might have been the issue as well. Uh, but that was something that I I kind of wish they had focused a little bit more on. Yeah, I mean they do at the very end. There's like one freeze frame where it's like Elvis went on to make some of the best music of his life, and then there's another <laughs> picture and it says, and then he went back to doing what Colonel Tom Parker wanted, and that's the yeah. end of the movie. Like it just that's really glosses dope. over how like. We reinvented him, and then we're not going to show the reinvention like at all. We're just gonna yeah, which was a bit of a. But again, I that might be just because EP is not on board, so it's very very difficult to show things like that, especially 1969, where there I mean... is no footage of his um, the performances he did in Vegas that year. Like in '70, I think they can start maybe. I don't know who owns that footage, but like they don't have the stuff from 1969 to show and. That is a bit, but whatever. I I do think though, there's a lot of information in the documentary that does make it interesting enough um, for new people. Like there's, I think, good amount of stuff. However, if you are somebody like me, but you even said you didn't find too much new information in there either. 
Yeah, and I don't want to. Other than I want to speak out of which <laughs> that is key information, though. I mean, it's very key and very specific very information. Because um, just to out myself as a red-blooded, cisgendered, heterosexual man, like she's Amen. a fucking fucking smoke show. Um, she looked great too. I when yeah, I, when like she really good. On screen, I was like, holy crap! Like she looks amazing. Yeah, and also it's just hotter. She's made hotter by the fact that she's so they're so into each other in that moment, and Very him too. Into, yeah, so into each other. Um, but what I was going to say is, I think maybe another thing to consider, and I don't have any inside baseball on this, but I'm I'm always kind of wary about a documentary in particular, where the main focus of the documentary, in this case, Steve Binder, um, mm-hmm. is also produced by Steve Binder. Yeah, you know. Um, I so I can give a bit of info on that, which is Steve Binder was not the person who wanted to like he didn't come up with the idea for the documentary, so they approached him. Um, there was uh, the director, what's the guy's name? The director of this, John Scheinfield. Scheinfield. Yeah. Um, he was the one who approached Steve Binder and said, like, would you like to do this documentary? At first, Binder says, no, I don't want to do it. Like, I think he just didn't what more was there to say and he had written a book about it which i do have and i could show you but it's downstairs Um, (laughs) it's a wonderful coffee table book it's very beautiful there's some great pictures of elvis in there um but he initially said no and then the director said to him like i don't just want to do it about the special really it's it's gonna the way that the way that he said it to me was like it it was going to be like a buddy movie like a, a showing binder and elvis together as friends and that relationship but I do think it, it goes a bit too far into the Parker was a villain. Like, I get it. We all know it. Anybody, if you've seen the Baz movies, like, you know, he is the villain of the story. I get it. And I'm a little bit tired of it now because I'm like, if we're going to make a movie about the 60 or a documentary about the 68 special, I would much rather the focus be on how well it did, like how amazing that special actually was. And which, is, which ostensibly what, is what this documentary is about but Mm -hmm. doesn't but they try this weird thing like throughout the whole bit of well parker did this to me and parker did that to me and i'm like yeah yeah i know i know i get it like again he was a bad guy and i know bender is still like incredibly bitter on him like he's very very negative on parker still um but you know and then and then also parker was an executive producer on it so he wasn't a proper proper producer on it he was just kind of one of those in title people but yeah also I'll, I'll defend steve bender a little bit but I, I understand what you mean like when you have a documentary and you see the same name kind of popping up one too many times and just anytime anytime the subject of a documentary in my view of a documentary yeah. is that it should be relatively objective yeah, um i agree is that if i see the if i see the name of the subject as a producer i'm going to be a little bit like really Really, maybe. Yeah, I know. What you're, I know. Like, what you're maybe, saying. maybe we should have excluded that person as a as a person who had any kind of say, even in title only. You know, I'll say even. Uh, I mean, it's not a documentary, but like the Madonna Madonna biopic, where she was going to be like writer, director, producer, and I'm I'm fairly confident she wanted to act in it. <laughs> like I'm so certain she thought I can play young Madonna. Still, what are you talking about? I can be. I can be these <laughs> Madonna. Um, but I know what you mean, though. I, I, there, there does need to be some distance between the subject and the people who are who are making it, because, yeah, how else, how else do you do it otherwise? Yeah, and another thing that 
I found interesting. Disappointing is maybe too strong of a word, but I did find it interesting who they chose to be in this. Because, mm-hmm. like, I've watched a lot of specials about Elvis in the past. I very, I have very distinct memories of watching at home with my mother a 30th anniversary special of the 68 special. And that had a ton of people in it, including like people who I know to be massive Elvis fans, like Chris Isaac. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just feel like there's none of those people are in this movie. And maybe that's because some of them are dead to be fair, because it's now been like 20, 20 some years more. Um, But also like, why like i don't i don't fully understand why darius rucker was in this for example not that he's not a talented person and not that he's not an elvis fan or whatever but like why is why is he in particular in it i don't particularly know and a couple of the other like performers who were in this i'm like why why this person like what is their connection to elvis i felt like that wasn't very well illuminated through the movie not that any of their sequences are bad like all the songs that are sung by other people in this movie are all great um yeah but you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like, I feel like there could have been a much deeper, I'm with you. deeper pool of t- of people to talk to. I mean, I completely agree. Not to be stuck on Chris Isaac, but I know for a fact that that man owns the leather suit from the '68 Comeback Special. So, like, why isn't he in this documentary? Right? Like, it's it's there's a it's a whole thing. Anyway, it is. I I, I completely agree with that. I think that this documentary, it I it's. So there had been like r- rumors that this documentary was getting made for maybe a couple years now. And I'm not, it didn't sound like it was, even though they got Steve Binder involved and that's a big deal, like to get him involved. He is one of the few people left um, who was actually around who worked with him. And when he's like 90 those, now. He's, yeah, he's, he's 90 years old. He's a, he's an elderly gent, but even getting the backup dancer, Susan, Susan Henning, they had the writer, they had a choreographer in there. Like it's hard. It's going to get harder and harder to find those people. And I think that you're absolutely correct. Like to pad that out, find some more high profile people who are very into Elvis. And they had a couple authors like Alana Nash, who I really dislike her um, as an author. <laughs> and uh, I'm Jillian Gar was the other person I mentioned. So you can get those people, but there are people like even above them who you could have gotten, like a Peter Gorelnik or an Ernst Jorgensen. Um, however, I know that they don't do very, very much of these things, um, if any of them at all, actually. But it does feel like a documentary that was lacking on resources and their pull in terms of who they could get to be involved. One, The younger guy who was in it, his name is Drake uh, Milligan. He was His connection to Elvis is that he played Elvis in a series i think it was like the sun record series or something like that really? and that's literally like kind of why they got him involved and he is an elvis fan and like maybe younger people are more aware of him than we are and that, that might be an age thing for us um but yeah I, I i agree i think that they just didn't they didn't really get a high caliber of people to be in it um which is a shame because i no, don't honestly, think that like... we're gonna see a documentary like this in a, in a long time because Let's face it, Binder's. I, I don't know how much Binder is going to be doing after this. I mean, probably nothing. He's ninety years old. Yeah, he's an old like I was, it wasn't hyperbole. He's actually ninety years old. Yeah, he is ninety. <clears throat> um. Yeah, I mean, and also just like like I mean, it's just a reality that 
1968 was 50 years ago. I know. Uh, so, but 50... Like, that's why it came 50, out this year. 50, 50, 55 years ago, 55. right? 55, like, yeah, because that's why that's why it came out this year was, like, for to mark the 55th anniversary of it. So it's it's been a long time, like... Yeah, I'm gonna say it's that been like a long time. as as part of my physical media rediscovery, I've been actually trying to find a physical copy of the '68 comeback special, but it's only ever been issued on DVD. And I was really hoping they'd do a 55th anniversary version of it, but so I guess I'll, I'll have to hold this. out for 60th. The Blu-ray version, there is a Blu-ray version out there. Apparently, it's not very good. Like yeah. the rendering they did it wasn't a very good job. So I have the DVD. It looks great. I love it. I watch. Yeah, I'm it just, I'm, you know, I'm just hoping that. If they didn't do it this year, then they'll probably do like a steelbook for the 60th anniversary or something. Maybe. I will buy that then, too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Get all of it. Fine. But the 68 is, is this is, he's done a lot of cool things in his career, obviously, but um, I, this is my favorite thing. Not just because of how good the actual special is, but just the story around it. Like everything that came around, you know, how his career was literally in the dumps when he came to this and then... His follow-up to it was phenomenal. And then you kind of have to ignore that eventually it just history repeated itself and Parker just kind of took a nose, nose, took him for a nosedive again. Yeah. Well, and also uh, I really like the, not just that his career was in the dumps, but like I enjoy the story that this special reinvigorated him yes. uh, artistically. And I feel like, I feel like a better Elvis movie would just be set, would just be this special. you know like i kind of think i don't know for sure but it seemed to me because like baz was his movie was basically rushing to get to this special and like the 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 only thing he spends a good amount of time on in the movie is the special and so it kind of seems to me like he even really he's like i want my movie to just be about this but he had to rush through everything else um but this this alone you're right it would make a fascinating movie just this one part of his career but you could take tons of different moments from his career and just have that even his hollywood years as sad as those years are it's like that could be a very fascinating movie actually yeah. um, on its own but which they totally glossed over in the Baz movie it's no anyway. they they showed posters <laughs> yeah sure they did that's great <laughs> they posters, and then they said but you know you only wanted to see him sing and then 68 special <laughs> that was literally all that happened. yeah well i will say this um it is interesting as a total aside related but an aside it is interesting that this year has seen two different documentaries about tv specials that steve bender has directed so so yeah <laughs> um I don't know if you watched a disturbance in the force, but he did. he did not he did not and participate it, in that one, and not, or at least so. I don't think I, I would want was. to remember that. He got it. He got interviewed in it. Did he? I don't. I was looking at the. I couldn't remember, and I was looking at the credits. So I didn't see his name. So he was interviewed in it because I was watching it, and then all of a sudden Steve Binder comes up on the screen. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Oh yeah. I was like, oh, you directed this thing. He directed and they it. Show clip, and they had the little pictures of Elvis in the Disturbance of the Forest documentary, which was a great delight for me. I enjoyed yeah. that immensely. Maybe it's because it's the it's Disturbance in the Forest is not on the movie database. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, not IMDb. Not yeah, it's not. I don't think it's gotten a proper release yet, so maybe that's why. Yeah, and also the movie database is often behind the internet movie database. So, but I prefer one of those to the other. Anyway, um, what are you going to give the documentary out of five? Three. 
I'd yeah. actually it's a solid two. two. Yeah, I'd, I'd give it a three. It it's would, a th- if it wasn't for Elvis, it would be. A two. <clears throat> I was gonna say but, it's it's a bit slight, but every it's like it's a bit slight. It's a bit light on talent, but then every once in a while you get a long clip of Elvis singing, and it's incredible. Uh, all you need is him like you just need him but then then in the same right i just be like well then just watch the special <laughs> like you don't yeah. need the documentary just watch the special oh also just before we go here i just want to point out <laughs> the most annoying thing about this special is at the very end when they finish with if i can dream and elvis looks great and he's singing in his white suit and it's amazing and then they cut to the end it's a black screen and they leave out the thank you good night why would you leave that out? I was Why wouldn't that be like the last shot of the movie? It, that should it's like a black screen and then you just hear Elvis say, "Thank you, good night." Why did you cut that out? It's like 2 seconds, not even 2 seconds of dialogue. Like I I don't understand. And it's funny cuz I read a few reviews about it and everybody's complaint is, "Why the hell would you cut that out? Of all the things to cut out in If I Can Dream or like in any of his performances, that little bit is the perfect way to end your movie." And they didn't do that. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's a, it's a three, but it's only barely yeah. three. Um, I agree. If if you gave me a half point, I would I would do a two and a half because I I don't think it's just I've seen a lot of documentaries in the last couple of years and like they can be great. <laughs> Documentary yeah. filmmaking can be phenomenal, and this is not that. And if this it is... wasn't for having Elvis in it, then it wouldn't. It would be a very blasé, like um, documentary. Yeah, I mean, it's the word for this is competent. Yeah, you know, not extraordinary, but competent. Which is too bad, but it I is. Know. Well, anyway, well, that's uh, two movies. Uh, so let's wrap it up there. We're a little bit over time. Um, so first off, uh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and you have the the best voice in the business um where can people find you other than on our show go to rachelho.com um and uh where, where, oh, i'm on twitter kind of not really and kind of not really on instagram too at underscore rachel kh i mean are we are we any of us on twitter anymore not just because it's I called just, i'm X, just not a social it's... media person generally speaking so you can so give me any platform and I probably have an account, but I don't really use it. Yeah. I have actually personally, just because I hate the man in charge, I'm posting a lot more on Instagram now because I hate that man in charge slightly less. It's the lesser of two evils at the moment. Yeah. So, um, uh, if you are listening to this, uh, that means you are listening to this. We would like to thank you for that. Uh, we, everyone who's new and everyone who's been here for a while, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to support us, we have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash mcsimpson. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, and if you do subscribe, it starts at as little as $2 Canadian a month. Uh, and you get all kinds of uh, bonus conversations every week in addition to the regular show. Um, you can also support us uh, in other direct ways such as subscribing to the podcast uh, five star reviews on the podcast on whatever your podcasting platform of choice is those are the things that get us in front of more earballs and we appreciate each and every one of you for each and everything you've ever done for us Um, uh, 
just to reiterate too, these two movies were both made, both released during the ongoing WGA and SAG after strikes. Uh, neither would be possible without contributions and care and love and attention from members of both of those unions. And we hope they are able to get the AMPTP back to the table and negotiating in good faith soon. So we can have a resolution and get back to, then get back to making the art that we love so much. Uh, we are recording this in two places today because Rachel's here. So we start uh, in Vancouver on the unceded ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. And in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Sagas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Amazing. Um, that is it for the show. Thank you one more time for listening and for joining us on this awesome Friday.